Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, and you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Welcome to today's edition of Truth in Christ Radio with Pastor Rob Kellogg. Today, Pastor Rob begins to review the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. The scripture says, I know your works. Jesus said this to each of the seven churches. However, the church at Philadelphia, known as the Faithful Church, had served God well in difficult circumstances, and Jesus knew it. This church had an open door set before them. Often, an open door speaks of evangelistic opportunity. Jesus told them he had opened the door of evangelistic opportunity, and they must go through that door in faith. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's message. Let's go ahead and get into uh, Revelation chapter 3, where, again, we've been looking at these seven churches. This morning, we're going to be looking at the Church of Philadelphia. The Church of Philadelphia. And so, let's read verses 7 through 13, and then we'll actually get into it. So everybody opened to Revelation chapter 3. Jesus, again, writing this letter, and he dictates it to John, and John would be delivering it to the different churches. He says this to the church at Philadelphia, And to the angel or the pastor or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, and you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown." 
And he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the churches. And so as we look at this church, it's kind of comforting to know. If you remember last week, we looked at the church of Sardis, which was really labeled the dead church. And now we're looking at the church of Philadelphia, which is a faithful church. And uh, next week, we'll be looking at the final church of the seven churches, uh, and that is Laodicea. And I'm really glad that the Lord put this church right in the middle of these two churches that we've been talking about or that we have talked about and that we will talk about because uh, things can get really discouraging and when you look at the things that are going on. And yet this church of all of them, of the seven, is the only church where the Lord didn't have some, some word of rebuke to them. You know, they were doing things really well. They were doing things right, and their attitude was right. And he says, I've got nothing more to share with you, but hold fast. In other words, stay into, um, you know, walk in the truth and continue doing those things. And, you know, and this is the kind of church and the kind of heart attitude that I want to have. And I hope that uh, this fellowship of ours at Calvary Chapel of Rochester, I hope that we can exemplify this kind of heart as well. In fact, I would... It would be great if, if every church in America and every church in the world exemplified this attitude of this church at Philadelphia, but we know that that's not always the case. And so we have to look at ourselves individually and also corporately and say, Lord, where do I stack up in all of this? Where do I stack up in all of this? Is my heart, is my heart cold like it was at the church of Ephesus? Or is, my, is, is everything going well? Is everything going well? And it's important because if the Lord has purchased you and I with His own blood, He deserves us. He deserves to have command over us. And yet, in our own will, we can resist Him and say, Lord, I, I don't want you. I want you out here. I will only allow you this far in my life. And you know what? The Lord is so gracious that even if you love Him and you say, Lord, here's the boundary... The Lord's going to meet you there at that boundary. And yet, you're going to be the one that will lose out because there'll be so much more that He wants to give to you and wants to bless you with. And you have to make that decision to tear those walls down because we can, even as Christians, we can put walls up and say, Lord, no further. And, and He will honor that. He's not going to overrule you in that sense. He didn't make us robots. The, one of the greatest ways that we know that we're loving someone is when we do something of our own volition. We do something out of our own heart. It's not something that we're forced to do. And the same thing with the Lord. You know, you know when you think of a husband and wife, you know, if a husband was, uh, or a wife was supposed to love the husband and she had no choice, she was kind of programmed, if you will, to love him, how great would that love be? How great would that husband feel about the love that his wife has? He, he probably would think very little of it because she has no other recourse. She's programmed to love him in a sense. But as soon as you add in free will, boy, things change. Things change. And as it is with a husband and wife, so it is true with us and the Lord as well. And so be encouraged in that. And uh, again, this is the only church that the Lord doesn't offer a rebuke to. The only one. And in this letter, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't describe himself 
with any of those descriptions that we have in chapter 1. If you remember in chapter 1, it describes for us uh, Jesus in his glorified state. And it begins in verse 13 of chapter 1. And let me just read it to you. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Notice his head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. He has in his hand the seven stars, and out of his mouth goes forth a two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when you see these descriptors, this description, it really speaks of the judge, doesn't it? It doesn't speak of somebody who is... Um, it's, it's holiness. And holiness, as loving as that is, there's also a part of that that is very um, serious about sin. And so when we see this description of Jesus in, in uh, Revelation chapter 1 here, it's speaking of him as as a as a supreme judge, but any and you remember as we went through the, the the different churches that in the beginning Jesus would refer back to that description and describe himself, and yet this is the only church where he doesn't do that. He departs from all those descriptors, and he just says uh, he doesn't mention anything about the flame of fire, the eyes like the flame of fire, or out of his mouth going a two-edged sword. There's, there's none of those descriptors as being a judge. And the reason for that is very probable because Jesus saw the good things in this church. He didn't see anything that needed to be corrected. And so it's very appropriate for him not to share those things that would give them any sense that he is bringing rebuke or chastisement upon them. So in the very first uh, verse there in verse 7, it says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. And uh, when we look at this word Philadelphia, Philadelphia, you know, if we just look at the city here, it's, uh, it literally means brotherly love. We have a city in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and that is the city of brotherly love. And this name, uh, Philadelphia, was actually named after a king in that, in that area at that time, uh, Attalus II Philadelphus, and that was his name, and that's where the, the name of the city gets its name. And remember, um, this city was the smallest of the seven cities thus far and was located about 25 miles southwest of, of Sardis. And compared to the other cities, it was a hub of communication and information distribution throughout that part of the world. In fact, because of its location, it was considered the gateway to the east, and it was an intersection. Uh, many roads intersected into Philadelphia, and it was actually the Roman armies, when they would travel from or to Rome, they would often travel through this city. And this city is interesting because it was actually situated on a fault line, where when there's an earthquake, it's, it's very severe. In fact, in 17 AD, one of the worst earthquakes happened in this area and totally destroyed this city and uh, because the city lied right on the fault line. In fact, many people wouldn't even go back into the city. They would stay outside of the city in fear of uh, aftershocks. And in fact, after that initial earthquake in 17 AD, uh, many years after that, there would be uh, shock waves that would come and the people became so fearful that they wouldn't go back into the city. And so, uh, so this is Philadelphia, and this is where the church was located. Let's go back to our text now. 
And we know that the word philo, in the Greek, we know that phileo is a, a word that is translated love in English. If you've fellowshiped with us for any length of time, you know that there have been times where I've kind of brought that distinction between phileo love and agape love, or agapeo love. And all of these, uh, in, the, in the Greek language, the word for love, it has many different words where... In English, we have one word. We say love, but in context, we know what love that is. I love my car, but I also love my wife, and I love God, and, and I love my daughter. And those, those uh, in context, you know that the love that I have for, say, you know, my car, that is very different from my love for God and certainly from my love for my wife or my daughter. So there's different shades of meaning, and the Greek brings that out. And so phileo is this idea of brotherly love. In fact, many words in our Bible that are, tra- that are translated love if you look in the original language, you'll find that shade of meaning based upon the word that it's using. You remember in John chapter 21 when Jesus, after his resurrection, he met his disciples in Galilee. And you remember that moment that uh, Jesus met Peter after his resurrection. He met him there on the shore, and Jesus said something to him that was very interesting. He said, Simon, do you love me more than these? And remember, Jesus used the word agapeo, which is a more... Um, a more a greater love uh, it's one of the highest forms of love in the greek language and he and jesus said peter do you uh, agape me do you agapeo me do you love me with a a, a a love that encompasses all that is self-sacrificing and and peter responded back and he says yes lord you know that i love you but peter used the word phileo and um and you remember through the dialogue of that uh Jesus turned the word around at one point and he asked him three different times. So finally the third time Jesus says, Peter, do you do you phileo me? Do you love me in a, in a brotherly love kind of way? And Peter was so grieved because he had said that because Jesus was really drawing out of Peter where his heart really was at. It wasn't quite there yet. I mean, Jesus loved or Peter loved Jesus, but it wasn't the kind of love that the Lord was hoping to, and the Lord was going to get him there, okay? But at that moment, Peter just wasn't there. And I love, again, that about the Lord. He's so patient with us. But this word phileo is a brotherly kind of love. It's, It's like a love you'd have for a friend, but it's very different from a kind of love that you might have for God or even for your wife. You know, if you love her and you're willing to lay your life down for her, that is more, you're getting closer to the agape love that Jesus was talking about. So phileo love, this is really where this comes from. It's a brotherly love. Notice in verse 7 that he says, Jesus, to this church, he says, These things, says he who is holy, he who is true. And when we look at this word holy, most people are repelled by the word holy. In our culture and unfortunately the word holy has gotten kind of a bad reputation because some people claim to be holy and yet their lives are anything but holy and so we find even pastors and preachers and television evangelists who many of them are charlatans and nothing more uh, than that and and yet people look at that and they you know the the preacher talks about holiness but in his own life he's you know he's got several different girlfriends on the side and he's a money launderer and a thief, and a liar, and these things just ought not to be. But Jesus, 
refers to himself as one who is holy. And, and someone that is holy is somebody who is sacred. They are pure. They are morally blameless. And that is really what Jesus is talking about here. It's a word, uh, Greek word hagios, which means that very thing. It means set apart. And, you know, something that is holy is set apart for a specific purpose. In the church, we are to be holy. God has purchased us with his own blood. And he says, be ye holy, for I am holy. And, and that's a tall order for us. And we're certainly not going to be perfect like Jesus is, but he, he demands and expects per, you know, holiness in our lives. And we're growing in that, aren't we? None of us are, uh, have arrived. None of us will arrive until we are home with the Lord. But until then, we know it's a process, right? And we have to be careful about that. But as long as we're uh, going forward and going upward in a sense, that, that's what the Lord desires from us. It's only when we stay still or when we start to take a nosedive that there's, there's room for caution or there's room for uh, rebuke there or to be careful. And to see if we're not careful, we can resemble the world and we can speak like the world, we can desire the things of the world, and we'll become totally ineffective for the Lord if that is the case in our life. And perhaps this world, uh, it doesn't need more of the world. They need more of Christ, and that's why we share with them. That's why we get into the Word. That's what church is, is for, to, to get us to focus on the one who knows all things, who is all things. And this is perhaps why very few take the church seriously today. Because if we're not walking in holiness, if we're not walking in purity, if we look more like the world, then the world has every reason to look at us and say, what need do we have of you? What need do we have of you? And so I think that's a really good encouragement, uh, an exhortation for us to really walk in purity, to walk in holiness. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but you know, you read the Word of God and you read it and you say, God, do this in me. Do this in me. I want everything you want for me, Lord. And see, without the Spirit of God indwelling you, believe me, it, it is just, it, it's, it's not really possible. You know, but now that we have the Spirit of God in us, if you're a Christian, it becomes possible. Again, not to live a perfect life, but your life is going to be so much different. There's going to be a different dynamic about your life. Because God, He is altogether holy. He's separate from sinners. He's separate from the world that He's created. He, remember, He is the uncreated one. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, Paul writes, he says, For such a high priest, speaking of Jesus, was fitting for us who is holy, he's harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. And so Jesus is separate from all of these things. He alone is the uncreated one. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, Paul, speaking to his protege Timothy, speaking of Jesus, he said, He is the blessed and the only potentate. There's only one potentate. There's not a potentate in Rome. There's one potentate, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it says, He is the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. I don't know about you, but that just blows me away to think that right now, the Lord, He dwells in unapproachable light. And, you know, we're, we're even going to need new bodies to even be in His presence. That's how intense it is. It's so wonderful. And he goes on, he says, Whom no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And certainly He's not only speaking of Jesus, but He's speaking about God the Father who is Spirit. He is Spirit. And, and so He dwells, 
Jesus and the Father, they dwell in unapproachable light. And notice going on in verse 7, he says, He who is true. Here's another descriptor of Jesus that he gives to this church at Philadelphia. And this word true is literally, it's the exact opposite of counterfeit or fiction. It is truth in every sense of the word, in every facet of the word. So when he says that he is true, he's talking about he's true in everything. He's true in character. He's true in thought. He's true in his motives. Everything is true. There is no darkness in him at all. There is no darkness And because of God's omniscience and His omnipotence, meaning He knows all things and He's also all-powerful, there's no reason for Him to lie. There's no reason for Him to not be true. Because if you are omniscient and omnipotent, you know all things and you can't change. See, you and I, we lie to each other because we are hiding the truth. But the truth is we may have done something, but we don't want each other to know that. So what do we do? We lie. But see, God doesn't have to lie. Because he's all powerful, he's perfect, and so he doesn't need to lie. So he can, he's always truthful in the way he acts, the way he speaks. Everything that he does is truth. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 6, it's one of my favorite verses, and hopefully one of your favorites too. Jesus spoke to his disciples. In fact, let me back up to verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples there in the upper room, He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And wherever I go, you know, and the way you know. And then I love Thomas because he said to the Lord at this point, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And then Jesus said those faithful words, those wonderful words. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Did you hear that? That means that there's no other way to get to heaven other than through Christ, because Jesus' name is Jehovah Shua, which means God's salvation. And if that is the truth, then that is the only salvation. Uh, We have to believe in Him and what He did and who He is in order to gain entrance into heaven. I mean, if God who created all things said, this is my son, hear him, I'd better be listening and I'd better be submitting my heart to him. And why wouldn't I want to submit to him? I mean, think about all that he has done. I mean, God is so wonderful. Jesus gave himself. He laid his life down willingly for us. And if he did that, and to secure me into heaven for eternity, okay, this is not just some, you know, a couple of weeks in glory. No, this is for eternity, folks. There's a difference between heaven and hell. And there are many that are going to hell. And there are many that will go to hell, unfortunately. But that's not God's plan. He says he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He delights in to know that you are going to be with him. But that is a decision that you and I have to make. So Jesus said to him, I am the only way, I am the only truth. That's literally what it means in the Greek here. And I am the only life. There's no other way. There's no other truth. There's no other life. Gandhi didn't give me the truth. Uh, Muhammad didn't give me the truth. Buddha did not give me the truth. David Koresh didn't give me the truth. Uh, The Zoroastrians didn't give me the truth. There's no one who's given me the truth except Jesus Christ because He is the truth. He is 
the truth. And I love the truth. Don't you love the truth? I love the truth. I love the truth of the Word of God. I love that Jesus is the truth. What did John say in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5? He said, This is the message we have heard from Him, speaking of Christ, and declare to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. There is no darkness in Him at all. And if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But Jesus is the truth, and He wants us to walk with Him. Will you walk with Him today? Will you walk with Him for the rest of your life? I made that decision when I was 24 years old, and I never regret going, never regret that decision. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me is that decision, that moment where God was uh, speaking to my heart, and I knew it. And then I decided, you know what, Lord, I'm not going to resist you anymore. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Revelation. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things, such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play and Apple Podcasts. You may also join us on Sundays and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.